0: Week in the Christian calendar. The week commemorating the drama of Jesus' last week of his life. Most of you know the story. It begins with Jesus' triumphant arrival in Jerusalem when he was greeted with palm branches and hosannas. And it culminates in the story of his appearance before some of his followers on Easter Sunday. Although this is the holiest week of the year for many Christians, many Unitarian Universalists today feel little sense of connection to the traditional passion story and Easter story. I can't resist telling one more joke. Some of you may have heard this one. It's been around quite a while. A teacher from a Christian denomination comes to teach a Sunday school class at a Unitarian Universalist congregation. She asks the children about various holidays and is perplexed at their answers. They say, Christmas is uh, when a big bunny comes and hides colored eggs, or Lent has something to do with candy, I don't know. And then she asks the children, well, what do they know about Jesus and the Easter story? One little boy pipes up, saying that it's about Jesus, who preaches to people and gets in trouble, and then gets killed and buried in a cave. The teacher is hopeful that at least this child knows something about a religious holiday. She urges the boy to continue. And then, says the boy, the stone gets rolled away from the cave where Jesus is buried. Go on, says the teacher. And then, says this little you, you child, uh, then Jesus comes out of the cave, and um, if he sees his shadow, there'll be six more weeks of winter. (laughs) I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. (laughs) A great deal happens during Passion Week, according to the New Testament. Jesus goes into the temple to drive out the money changers and the profiteers, angering the authorities. He teaches at the temple and in small communities each day during the week, making more enemies among temple authorities. Many of his most well-known sayings and parables occur during this fateful week. In the latter part of the week, he shares the Passover Seder, at least some scholars say it was a Seder shares the Last Supper with his disciples. The next day, he is arrested, tried, sentenced, and executed by the swift cruelty of Roman justice and the insistence of mobs of people who only a week before, as the story goes, laid palm branches in his path. One of the Passion Week events that the Gospels recount is one that has always held meaning for me. It held meaning for me as a young Catholic, and it still does long after I gave up my childhood faith, long after I stopped believing in Jesus as God. In fact, this part of the story has more meaning for me because Jesus, to me, is fully human. After the Last Supper as the story in Mark tells it, Jesus and his disciples go to the garden at Gethsemane to pray. A very depressed Jesus takes Peter, James, and John aside and confesses, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He implores his three tired disciples to keep watch for him, while he goes a stone's throw further away to pray. But they keep dozing off, disappointing him with their fleshly weakness. While praying in the garden, Jesus experiences a moment of grave doubt about his mission and his upcoming ordeal. He sweats with fear, understanding too well the danger that he is facing knowing that he would be ultimately alone, that his loving disciples would get cold feet and betray, deny, and turn away from him. So he prays to his God, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. How fully human and how entirely understandable As the Persian mystic Khalil Gibran said, Jesus was a man and not a god, and therein lies our wonder and surprise. Jesus was afraid, just like any of us would be afraid. He didn't want to face the challenge or bear the pain. We've all been there, though perhaps not under such extreme circumstances facing an ordeal, facing a challenge, a difficult path alone, wanting, more than anything, to turn and run from it. Take this cup from me. Maybe we did run. Maybe we ran into some distraction, alcohol, drugs, or some other comforting compulsion. Or maybe we fought with all our might to control the situation, to dissolve the pain by a sheer act of will, so we wouldn't have to deal with the challenge or the destruction to our lives. In his weak moment, Jesus prayed to be excused from the difficulty he believed it was his responsibility to face. But in the very next breath, he found his courage, and it was a particular form of courage, the courage of surrender. He surrendered his own will to what was for him something greater, and said, yet not my will, but thine be done. Once, at a difficult time in my life, a counselor quoted those words to me. It was a time when I was fighting hard to make things happen in a relationship the way I wanted them to happen. The problem was, some of what was happening was out of my control. But I was flailing around, believing I could control the outcome. At one point, the counselor suggested that maybe I had done all I could, and that the outcome was not entirely up to me. He suggested that perhaps I might now let go of the need to control that it might be time to say to myself, not my will, but thine. That is, to let the process unfold as it was going to. That helped to wake me up. It brought me to the realization that I really could not control things, that all I had control over was how I reacted to some givens in the situation. I then began to realize that it was time to stop pushing the river and let it flow by itself. And since then, a few other times when I have found myself struggling too much to control a situation or worrying too much about a future I couldn't control, I have used those words of Jesus so appropriately quoted by that counselor, not my will, but thine, as a meditation, and I have been able to relax a bit and let go. There is a prayer I'm sure most of you have heard. It's called the Serenity Prayer, and it has been attributed to a number of different people, Reinhold Niebuhr. St. Teresa of Avila and others. It is a simple prayer. God, grant me the courage to change the things I can, the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, and the wisdom to know the difference. This prayer has become so popular that it's almost a cliche, yet it expresses a very wise and very difficult aspiration. There are certainly things we can and believe we should change if we can find the courage. Getting out of an abusive relationship, making an important decision about our life's work, changing a self-destructive habit, taking a stand against social injustice. But there are also situations that no amount of action or willfulness on our parts will change, like making someone love you, or making someone stay in a relationship with you, or bringing a loved one back from the dead, or wishing away a terminal diagnosis, or forcing someone else to be responsible. What is especially hard and requires the wisdom of experience and sometimes that of a trusted guide, is to know what really can be changed and what must finally be accepted. To know when to surrender action and will, and let what is in progress just unfold. In one Star Trek Voyager episode, you all know by now that I'm a fan of Star Trek and all of its incarnations, this, this practice of surrender was well illustrated. In that episode, the spaceship Voyager was experiencing some strange distortions. Rooms on the spaceship were rearranging themselves. Systems were shutting down. Amid the frantic attempts at technological fixes by crew members and the cries that they've tried everything to stop the distortion, one character, Tuva the calm and cool Vulcan, says he has a suggestion. The desperate crew is eager to hear it, so Tuvok says, we can do nothing. The other crew members exclaim, are you crazy? We can't just do nothing. They ignored his advice and kept trying everything they could think of. But the wise Tuvok was able to surrender. He just stood calmly as the spatial distortions washed over the crew. The distortions turned out to be caused by an innocuous force, just a curious but non-threatening alien life form. There was no harm done, and the alien even left a gift in its wake, a kind of cultural exchange as new information was downloaded into the ship's computer. It is particularly hard for us in our Western culture to surrender our will. We're fond of doing and acting and controlling and making things happen. But letting things happen, letting go of the need to steer, surrendering our will, yielding, is a lot harder for most of us. The ancient sages of the East understood that yielding giving up power is sometimes paradoxically the most effective, courageous, and ultimately powerful way. The sage Lao Tzu, as recorded in the Tao Te Ching, says, As the soft yield of water cleaves obstinate stone, so to yield with life solves the unsolvable. Yield, and you need not break. Bent, you can strengthen. Torn, you can mend. To try to control the outcome of events, to believe that we always can be in control, can be an arrogant stance. In Lao Tzu's words, trying to control the future is like trying to take the master carpenter's place.
1: When you handle
0: the master carpenter's tools, Chances are that you'll cut your hand. What is necessary for us to be able to yield, to surrender our will, is trust. Trust that the future can sometimes unfold just fine without our always meddling. In the many 12-step programs which people follow to help them deal with what feels like an out-of-control addiction. The very first step involves admitting to being powerless over the addiction. This step alone is hard enough for one to take, admitting that one's life is really out of control. But a later step, the third, is even more challenging for most people. It involves making a deliberate decision to turn one's will and very life over to a power greater than oneself. which is called God by most, but has been called other things as well, it's really not my will but thine. That's the essence of the third step. Not my will. The higher or broader or wider power that one surrenders to and places trust in may be different things for different people. For Jesus, it was the one he affectionately Addressed as Abba, his Father in heaven. For Lao Tzu, it was the Tao, the unnameable way, the cosmic process from which life emanates. For a given person on the 12-step path or on any spiritual path which involves the humble and courageous act of surrender, it may be God or God's amazing grace, it may be Allah or the goddess, or the world soul, or the unfolding process of the universe, the ever-renewing force of nature, the power of love or loving community, or even the God within, that core of strength at the center of our being that we may not understand, but we know from experience can buoy us up through difficulty let go enough of our need to steer and direct and control our lives, at least at times, and especially when we can't control what happens? Can we let go enough to let a challenging situation unfold in its own way and in its own time? Can we ever stop pushing the river and let it flow of its own accord? If we can, we may well find that we can float without sinking, although there is no guarantee. But we may discover in letting go that something supports us. Letting go of struggle, we may find that a new path opens up for us. Letting go of fear, we may be more open to love and closer to joy I'd like to close with two personal examples of the practice of surrender in my own life I uh, first the first one took place somewhere around 25 years ago, it's so long now uh, I can't quite remember but I remember I went to Disneyland with my sister and my son and my nephew and it was the first time I had been there since I had taken my cousin's daughter some 20 years before that. This happened to be a rainy, non-holiday weekend in February, and there were practically no lines for the rides. It was pouring rain. My nephew was eager to go on the Space Mountain ride, which is a very fast roller coaster that takes off and then soon tilts sideways. I sat in the car next to my seven-year-old nephew, the uh, uh, ride car, and off we went. It had been a long time since I had been on any kind of fast ride, and I was terrified. My nephew yelled out to me, isn't this fun, Aunt Joy? (laughs) As we sped and tilted sideways, I said, "Uh, yeah, Mark. But my knuckles were white as I held on for dear life. I got out at the end of the ride with weak knees. But then, I had a little talk with myself. I reminded myself that we were not likely to die on this ride. (laughs) That it was actually pretty safe. And that in any case, gripping the rail tightly and tensing up would not control what would happen. So I went back on the ride, determined determined to relax and enjoy it. When I let go of the fear and surrendered to the experience, I I found that it really was loads of fun. And then I kept going back for more. I just couldn't get enough of those fast rides. Were I to try that today, I think I'd have to talk myself into it all over again, but it worked at that time. The second personal experience was in a yoga class I took over 40 years ago as a student in seminary. I was fairly flexible then, and I could do most of the body-twisting postures, but the headstand had me stumped. Try as I might, I just couldn't do it. At one point, the instructor advised me to stop trying so hard and to just stay in the position prior to the headstand, the position of the child, as as it's called. It's a crouched position. She said, just stay there and visualize yourself doing the headstand. I did this, and a few moments later, she came by, looked at me like this, and said, You're doing it, you know. I was actually in the headstand. To this day, I do not know how I got from the crouched position to the headstand, but I believe it had something to do with surrender, with giving up the struggle. I would like to end with a brief guided meditation. I invite you to take a moment to think about some situation in your life which is causing you, or perhaps has caused you, difficulty in the past. Just think about some situation like that. And hold the feelings arising from that situation in your mind. Ask yourself gently, Is there something I can do to change the situation? To improve it? If you believe that your action cannot change the situation, can you imagine yourself letting go? Letting the process unfold as it will. Letting go of the struggle to change it. Letting go of the burden of trying to control, perhaps letting go of some of the worry, the fear, the concern. How might it feel to truly let go? As a reminder of the need to sometimes let go of struggle, I'm going to give each of you a little gift this morning. You know what these are, right? An illustration. <laughs> They're called finger traps, finger or finger puzzles, and you may know how they work. You put them on your finger, and then the harder you pull and struggle. The free your fingers the more tightly they grip because of the way they're woven cannot do it, no matter how strong, but if you relax and just stop pulling voila they come off so easily you can have one of these as a reminder of the spiritual discipline of surrender and letting